الجزيرة بودكاست Hi, Malika here. It's been a while and I'm not quite back yet. But before you start today's episode, I wanted to jump in and say thank you for listening and for supporting the take. With your help and your ears, we've made it to our 500th episode. That's our team celebrating. In this wide and wild media landscape, it's nice to know you appreciate the stories we tell. And that's what host Hala Mohyaddin is talking about today, the media. So keep listening and stay till the end of the show for a little treat. It's hard. If I had kids, would I want them to be journalists? It's hard. Maria Ressa is an author, a Nobel Prize winner, and one of the most accomplished journalists in the world. You know, I became a journalist at a time when news and journalism was at the top in terms of credibility. But being a journalist in her home country, the Philippines, has not been easy for a while. We've been under attack on social media and in the real world because people don't trust mainstream media anymore. Trust in journalism is being eroded worldwide, and more people are now turning away from the news. But Maria says, despite this, journalism is more important now than ever. Why would you want to be a journalist today? Because every democracy needs these checks and balances, and power corrupts absolutely. So what, if anything, can be done to restore the world's interest and trust in the news? I'm Hala Mahiedin, and this is The Take. Maria Ressa formed the investigative journalism site Rappler in 2011 to fill a need for unbiased news in the Philippines. Social media was taking over, and Rappler soon became hugely popular. But after President Rodrigo Duterte was elected in 2016, he became famous for his attacks on the press, and Maria was at the centre of this battle playing out in her country. And I remember the date, February 13, 2019, the first time I was arrested here in the office. A journalist in the Philippines who was named as one of Time Magazine's Persons of the Year has been arrested for libel. It would be just the first time, and the charge was cyber libel, essentially libel or publishing false, damaging statements for an online world. Maria says the arrests were part of the Duterte government's attack on journalists' credibility. At one point, her potential sentences added up to 100 years in prison. The Philippine government says Maria Ressa has broken the law and must be held accountable. But her supporters say the recent spate of cases filed against her amount to harassment. When we spoke, she was sitting in those same Rappler offices. When we started, I focused on counterterrorism. We were investigative journalists. There's a glass wall between Maria's desk and the rest of the staff, but you can hear them working away as we talk. Can you hear our guys? Whisper na lang kayo, sorry. When we started talking about Rappler in 2011, we believed in the power of social media. 
I drank the Kool-Aid. I believed that social media is for social good. There was no paper or TV channel. Their journalism was all online. In 2011, Maria thought that was a good thing. But in 2019, she was arrested. It was a shock. I just didn't expect that. So I realized I had to think through what seemed unthinkable. One of the things she thought through was the connection between what was happening to her country with President Duterte and the media and what was happening online with Facebook. 100% of Filipinos on the internet are on Facebook. Facebook is our internet. So she ended up writing a book, How to Stand Up to a Dictator, about that connection. You mentioned Rodrigo Duterte and Mark Zuckerberg, and that's not two people that you would normally, you know, because Duterte is painted as a bit of a baddie and Zuckerberg is hailed as one of the revolutionaries of the internet age with Facebook, which most people on the planet use today. And I guess it comes down to, are they both comparable in terms of threats to journalism? I mean, how big a threat would you say someone like Mark Zuckerberg and his Facebook or Twitter or all these social media sites that we all use now, are they a threat to journalism and are they a threat to democracy in your eyes? Far more than Duterte. Absolutely. And they're a threat to, to humanity because what they have done is essentially turned the world upside down by spreading lies over facts. That shifts the entire world, right? That is the beginning of this. I don't know if you watched Netflix, Stranger Things, the upside down. The reason we're in the upside down is because the value system has been shifted by social media for profit. I lived through this in the Philippines. These changes could not have happened as quickly as they did. So quickly that that first arrest brought Maria face-to-face with brand-new cyber libel charges, charges that didn't exist when the article was first written. Cyber libel, you actually have to write it. This is what's written in the law. It's a story I didn't write, edit, or supervise. And the time that was hardest was June 15th, 2020. When I went to court, I packed the bag. You know, what's the worst case scenario? Bail would not be granted. I could be thrown in jail. And I heard a guilty verdict on the cyber libel case, right? When I heard the conviction. We're just hearing uh, from our colleagues inside the court that the Manila court has convicted Rappler CEO Maria Ressa of cyber libel. We're trying to find When I realized it was a conviction, I put my notebook down and I just looked at the judge. She was funny because she was wearing bright red lipstick. We were all masked except for her. And she quoted Nelson Mandela. And that's when I really felt the Kafkaesque world. This is not something within my control. And it felt I really felt like Alice in Wonderland diving down the rabbit hole. But after I was granted bail, I thought, well, we just keep going. And we kept going. It's really inspiring, actually, hearing that, because the pressures that you and your team are facing sounded extraordinary. 
I mean, I, I don't know how I personally would cope with the, these the legal attacks that you're facing. For some, the, the solution is just to leave journalism, and I know a lot of people who've done that. You know, I became a journalist because information is power. And what happens when lies by design spread faster and further than facts? And then if you add anger and hate and us against them, you manipulate our biology, then that lie spreads even faster. That's the design of our information ecosystem today. And that's what Maria was starting to fight. She wasn't just battling in court, though. She was also the target of a massive social media hate campaign. In 2016, I was getting an average of 90 hate messages per hour. And it isn't just that pounding you to silence. But the second thing that people don't realize is that there are algorithms that determine, that that essentially shape the politics of every country. Take Brazil, for example, with former President Jair Bolsonaro. If you take a look at YouTube, there's a great study that actually showed what happened with Bolsonaro was the recommendation algorithms of YouTube took people who watch one video. The next video that's recommended to you is slightly more extreme. And then the video after that is even more extreme. These are algorithmically created. The same study is going on now in the United States. In the end, we don't even know. It's insidious. We don't even know we're being manipulated. Now, how do we fight it? How do you fight so, it? Exactly. So right. I, I don't know how to take on an algorithm. I, I, I don't, you know, try my best. How do you fight that? It has to be legislation, right? Why are there building codes? And why are there no codes for the algorithms that manipulate our emotions and manipulate our minds? Citizens. We have to stop being users and go back to being citizens. But what we've seen now is that globally, democracy is in retreat. 60% of the world today now live under autocrats. You know, 2024 is going to be a crucial year because there are elections that will tip the balance of power geopolitically. India, you know, world's largest democracy, and then the U.S. elections. If they go the wrong way, I think that hits the tipping point. And it will be from democracy to autocracy to fascism. One of the bulwarks against these trends is, of course, journalism. Telling the truth and giving the public facts to inform their decisions if they do have a chance to vote. But Maria also worries about the impact of social media on that too. The traditional news organizations, advertising was our business model, which is essentially dead, because advertising cannot hold a candle to micro-targeting. The second way that they have killed journalism is the incentive structure. Right? The incentive structure for distribution of news today is sensationalism. At best, lying at worst. So this is critical. This is why fascism is winning, because who wins, right? And there's something that, according to Maria, may be even worse than lies. It's very clear that online violence is real-world violence. I mean, in our office in 2016, when we came under attack, we had to increase security. My gosh, I think in two and a half years, we increased security six times. 
right? So these are realities. Okay, now, now you can see like all my like pent up anger. <laughs> um, let me, ah, where will it go? To answer that question, where will the media go? We got on the line with someone who's been studying that for more than a decade. That's after the break. Hey everyone, Sami Zaydan here from Essential Middle East. On this week's show, we're going to ask who's sending weapons to Yemen and why. I've been talking with journalist and Nobel Prize winner Maria Ressa about how fights for media freedom have become a global problem. But it's also the demand for news that's changed. And to understand why, I heard from someone who's been studying media trends for years. I'm Nick Newman. I'm a senior research associate at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism, which is part of Oxford University. And so in the length of your long and storied career, you must have seen quite a lot of changes in the way we report the news and how people get their news. Yeah, absolutely. I was involved in the beginnings of news on the internet. And then over 10 years, gradually, year on year, we saw online becoming sort of indispensable to people's way of life. I remember when I was wanting to get into journalism, I was advised, don't bother going to university. Start off with your local newspaper. That was the routine. That was how people, you learned your craft. And I remember when I came back to the UK in the early to mid-2010s, out of curiosity, I went to see my local newspaper and it was just one guy trying to hold everything together with a couple of part-timers who came in for fun. It was a real shock to the senses. I think local news is a really difficult case. They lost the classified income first and aggregators like Google and Facebook have been able to sell the local audience much better to advertisers. I mean, much of local news is really doing a really important democratic job of holding local people to account, ensuring corruption doesn't happen. And there has to be a sustainable business model to enable those journalists to be employed to do that. And I think of the case of George Santos, a Republican congressman who was recently elected in New York. There have been mounting calls for the newly elected Republican congressman, George Santos, to resign in the US. It's the local papers who were picking up on the fact that this guy was lying. A small local paper on Long Island called the North Shore Leader broke the Santos scandal before the November election. But because no one's reading local news, it's only once the guy gets sworn in that, that people are starting to realize, oh, hang on. We're learning more about the lies New York Congressman George Santos told as a younger man about his family's wealth and his business success. Are we now relying on national outlets to do the jobs that were done by local outlets and done quite effectively? You're right. The scrutiny of local politicians traditionally has been done by those local newspapers. That's where most of the journalists were employed, and that's where the predominant cuts have been in terms of the revenue and the staffing levels over the last 10 years or so. And in many parts of the US, there are no local newspapers left. The new models that are emerging, startups based on newsletters, maybe employ one or two people in a city. And what's the risk if there is no solution found? I think some of the things we're seeing already, which is people becoming disconnected from news, people being seduced by local propaganda as politicians talk directly through social media. Some candidates running for office are using a new weapon, not so secret weapon, to try to reach voters. TikTok 
and campaigns. You get worse outcomes for people, worse governance, you get more corruption. We've seen this in, in, in many countries around the world where the media is not allowed to operate independently and hold rich and powerful people to account. But Nick says it's not all bad news. Bigger papers like the New York Times have found a model that works and there are things to look forward to if you're a news hound. If you're really interested in news, there's never been more choice. You can get news from all over the world, much of it's free and of very high quality. But a lot of it is behind a paywall. Are you tired of ads, paywalls and other garbage infecting your browsing experience? Someone might post a link to a very interesting article. You go to read it and it's hidden behind a paywall. I mean, if you look at the paywall methods, do you think the paywall model is going to continue then? I think it will adapt. In the past, people paid for newspapers in subscription or they paid at the newsstand. And if you add all that money up, it actually comes to quite a lot. It comes to more than a Netflix subscription. I think the problem is it's turning other people away from news. People see a paywall, they click off and maybe they don't read any news at all. And again, that's worrying for democracy. It does strike me that ever since we've had the rise of Facebook and, you know, when Twitter became a big news source, now we're dealing with things like TikTok. People are, especially younger people, are turning to these social media sites to stay up to date with current events and really is quite concerning for those of us who work in legacy media. Yeah, I think what we've seen in our data at the Reuters Institute is that year on year, more people prefer to access via aggregators or social media than they do to take the effort to go to a news website that's older people too. And that trend is not changing anytime soon. So would you say this is adding up to people just not keeping up with the news? There is a proportion of people, it's perhaps up to 15% in, in the US, maybe 9% in the UK, who say they don't consume any television news, any news from the radio or print or from social media. That's 9 to 15% of people not engaging with the news at all. And then we also find a news avoidance problem where people are using the news, but using it selectively and much less than they used to because they feel overwhelmed by the negativity in the news right now, which is not journalists' fault. It's just there's a lot of bad things happening one after another. Um, and particularly young people are worried about their mental health. And so they're, they're actually attitudinally looking to protect themselves and they see news as damaging. I mean, I'll be honest with you, I can identify with that. Can we not get a panda like you, Leigh, or something we can just stick on the ends? Pretty much everyone you talk to can identify with news avoidance, <laughs> uh, even journalists. Yeah. <laughs> it's relentless. It's relentless. And it's also that in the past, people would catch up at the end of the day on, with a television news bulletin, and they don't do that anymore. There's always another alternative. It's just never been easier to avoid the news. But that doesn't mean every news outlet should abandon what they're doing for cooking shows and panda videos. Not yet, Nick says. And I think it's that more rounded perspective um, that people are looking for. You know, they want journalism to reflect the world as it is, not necessarily the world through a cynical lens. Another criticism that you get of the media, uh, the mainstream media, as we like to get clobbered with, is that we're losing trust. When we ask people why they don't trust the media, the main reason is that people think that the media has an agenda and they're looking for 
authenticity, I suppose. They're looking for something different from mainstream media, which they think is agenda-filled, tired, old, stuffy. Do you think we're at a tipping point here in 2023? Yeah, absolutely. Right now, we're in a really interesting spot. So it's not just journalism. Facebook is losing audiences. Twitter is losing audiences. And we're starting to see the rise of new networks, influencers, the next wave of disruption with artificial intelligence. Even though those older social media platforms are losing audiences, journalists around the world are still dealing with their legacy, including Maria Ressa. The day after we spoke with Maria, she was acquitted of some of her charges. But she's still fighting for journalism and democracy and against these attacks on social media. And she's still fighting in court. For her, it's not over yet in the battle against what she calls information warfare. Information warfare is like fertilizer on the ground that makes people distrust. When they distrust, a government that wants to do things that would be anathema in the past can then do it with impunity. I also never thought that I would have to defend myself against such ridiculous charges because these charges should never have made it to court. And yet here we are. What It's like when the unthinkable becomes real, you, you have to shift. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters with Chloe K. Lee, Nagin Oliay, Miranda Lynn, Ashish Malhotra, and me, Hala Mahiyadeen. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Aya Elmalek and Adam Abugad are our engagement producers. And Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer. Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. Oh, and before we go, we wanted to share some messages you shared with us for our 500th episode about what you love about The Take. The very best part of waking up is seeing The Take in my feed. That's Jessica. She listens in DC and LA. And this is Shazad Malik from Pakistan. I learn from Take, so I listen Take too much. Hello, I'm Dave Danu. I'm from the UK and I listen to The Take. The reason why I like it, I have so many interests in various parts of the world. I love that it's short and snappy. There's no geographical bias on the stories covered. And most importantly, it's just honest reporting. I started watching Al Jazeera as a kid because of its relentless commitment to spotlighting voices from the global south. And now it's fascinating to hear Al Jazeera do the same thing, but in the audio format. So congratulations to your team on the 500 episodes. And here's to many, many more. My name is Mary Kelly Gardner. I'm a public school teacher in California. I encourage all my students to listen to the take. And... I also have to say that my senior chihuahua captain, who gets pretty bad anxiety in the evening, is a huge fan of Malika's mellifluous voice. Without fail, he hears it and immediately settles into his bed. And we also wanted to say thank you to you for listening to The Take. Thank you for listening for 500 episodes. Thank you so much for listening. Just want to thank all the listeners. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to The Take. It's Malika, and we couldn't have done it without you. Thank you for listening. Thanks from all of us. You'll be hearing more from Malika very shortly. Until then, we're back on Wednesday. <laughs>